Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Forged in Fire, where we explore how LGBTQ plus leaders develop their leadership superpowers. You'll hear from guests as they share how they navigated their journey through adverse and crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallaro. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. I'm an astronautical engineer in the United States Space Force and one of the senior transgender officers in the military. I'm a passionate advocate for the value inclusion brings to organizations. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallaro. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ leaders are forged. Hello and welcome to our very first episode of Forged in Fire. We are so thrilled to be joined today by Rafi Friedman Gerspan. I'm going to give you a little bit of Rafi's bio, but then talk about you know why we were so excited to get Rafi as our first guest. So Rafi was appointed uh, as right now as the Deputy Director of Public Engagement at the United States Department of Transportation by President Biden, but that's just the beginning. Rafi's championed human rights in the nonprofit and government sectors for over a decade. She was previously a deputy states director for the National Redistricting Action Fund and the director of external relations at the National Center for Transgender Equality. Really importantly, Rafi served in the Obama administration from 2015 to 2017, working at the White House on public engagement for LGBTQ community affairs and as a recruitment director for presidential personnel. Rafi was the first openly transgender staffer to work at the White House in history and was appointed to a five-year term on the Holocaust Museum's Board of Trustees. Now, that's a lot, a lot of amazing firsts in Rafi's career. But Rafi, above and beyond that, we were super excited to have you as our first guest because we know within the LGBTQ community, there are a lot of intersectional identities. And as we start looking at that, we think, what are those that Rafi doesn't have? And we're like, there's probably not that many. So I think it, it would be fascinating to talk a little bit about how your intersectional identities have informed your leadership journey. How did all the varying aspects of who you are and where you came from drive your leadership journey and who you've become. But before we get to that, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are thrilled to have you. Thank you so much, uh, Bree and Liz and um, Mazel Tov, Shekhianu, as we say in uh, my Jewish uh, tradition. Yeah, we're recording on the first day of Hanukkah. Yeah, first day of Hanukkah. Yeah, well, tonight. And very excited um, and honored to be uh, your first guest and and really looking forward to our conversation, which I think, uh, you know, go, thinking back to 2009, when I sort of started this journey after college, recent college grad in the middle of the recession, had transitioned just two years prior, had been involved in LGBTQ youth work, um, and was, I, I mean this in some ways, very, very fortunate to come from the state of Massachusetts, have um, supportive parents and community, but knowing, frankly, how dire the circumstances were and, and still remain for so many people across our nation and indeed around the world who are LGBTQ. Yeah, this conversation about who we are as leaders and, and, and how our different identities inform that, you know, really speaks uh, volumes to me because for me, I like to always start off actually where things began, which is I'm adopted. I'm uh, a Honduran adoptee. I was born on May 3rd, 1987 in Intibuca, which is a part of Honduras uh, in the southwestern part of the country, which is um, very mountainous and has always been primarily an indigenous homeland of the Lenca people, um, which I hail from. And uh, for me, I grew up knowing about my adoption, um, though I never met my birth family, 
it was something that my parents, being uh, two very good progressive social workers, um, felt that they needed to make sure that I felt affinity to and, and grappled with the understanding of what it meant to be an international adoptee uh, in this country. Um, and I think that's where a lot of my leadership stems from, of just off the bat, so to speak. I was different, and I was adopted into an American Jewish family um, in a progressive part of the country. But of course, I grew up, you know, understanding what it meant to be Jewish, not only in the United States, but indeed around the world and being very cognizant later on as I grew up about anti-Semitism, about really being involved uh, with the world. Uh, In our faith tradition, we talk about tikkun olam or repairing the world. And sort of this dedication to service in some form, whether it's actual eventual public service or um, just community service and being engaged and and making sure that those uh, less fortunate than us are better off um, than when we uh, necessarily first interacted with them. Or you could see that from an environmentalist perspective about leaving the world a better place than when we found it. And so that's that's definitely a, a huge part of who I am uh, is this sense of just where I come from, you know, always uh, keeping that in the back of, of my mind. And then later on, of course, I, I came out, you know, I, I, I experienced other things, and I'm sure we're about to talk about a lot of those, but, but I always sort of ground myself in, in, in where I come from. Yeah, Rafi, I think we will jump to the conversation around sort of how some of these things developed you as a leader. Um, We absolutely want to know more about that dedication to service. So we'll talk about that in a bit. I was wondering if you could share with us a bit about that coming out experience and how some of the things that you faced contributed to your development as a leader. Yeah, I came out twice, actually. When I was about 12 years old, I realized that the funny feelings I had at the time I was still living as a boy uh, for other boys was more than just little admiration. It was it was real crushes. And arguably, I think I knew way before, you know, the language that I sort of developed as a, as a preteen uh, knew that I, you know, was attracted to to boys and, you know, was attracted to you know, masculine boys in particular, which I was not, although I was not very, very feminine, I certainly was not a rough and tumble uh, kind of uh, little boy. And um, the way that I describe it to a lot of uh, youth in the in the trans and non-binary world now, who I think just might not understand the world that we were in, uh, certainly in the in the 90s, and of course, before was that there just wasn't language, especially for youth around gender identity. I, I definitely think that I knew there was a gender aspect to my coming out. But in 1999, there just were not a lot of trans youth, um, certainly none that I knew. So I sort of went through my um, high school years as an out gay boy, but back in my mind, I knew something else was there, but I just kind of couldn't put my finger on it until I met um, a trans woman uh, who was a local organizer in our community in Boston. And uh, she did a training for our uh, Gay Straight Alliance, as they were known back then, around uh, transgender issues and gender identity. And a lot of... um, uh, neurons were going off in my brain and connections were being made. And I later on read Jennifer Feeney Boylan's uh, book, She's Not There. That also um, started a lot of introspection for myself. So by the time I went to college, I I kind of knew um, that it was more than just sexual orientation, that it actually was gender identity. And so when I had completed my freshman year of college at St. Olaf College in Minnesota, I realized that I was trans, that I was a trans woman. And and at St. Olaf, 
the dorms are, uh, the floors are divided by gender. And so it was one of those situations where I, I, I just sort of said, I'm, I'm living on the wrong floor. I really like my, my male friends and everything. And I, and, you know, I love hanging out with the girls too, but like, I, I'm a girl living on the, on the boys floor and, and this is somewhat uh, terribly inappropriate, but also kind of, you know, interesting in itself because I, for myself, I don't, I don't sort of shy away from the fact that I was raised a boy and I had those experiences, although um, I remind people I was a very tiny boy and, and I dealt with a lot of um, toxic masculinity that was thrown my way because I wasn't somewhat, uh, you know, conforming to what people thought uh, a boy uh, should be like. But I'm also grateful because I think in some ways um, when I have children of my own who might be, you know, uh, masculine uh, identified that I, I, I sort of, I, I would hope as their mother uh, would know a little bit more than maybe uh, sort of your average mom out there around, uh, you know, uh, being a boy and also trying to deflect, frankly, the worst of um, masculinity uh, that is out there. So I came out, um, transitioned on college when I was 20 years old. And, uh, actually this, um, December, actually, I want to say 15 years ago this week is when I fully transitioned in terms of, um, living full time. Um, I was living in Europe, uh, studying abroad and told my parents to bring all my, my, my girl stuff, so to speak, that I, I was going through with it. And, uh, the rest is history, as we say. Rafi, you experienced so many things at, at an early age. and. You realize you you face some things about toxic masculinity, and I'm sure there were some other discriminatory events that likely happened to you as you went through that. How do you unpack the concepts and the challenges that you face in relation to the multiple identities that you hold? And if you were being discriminated against, were you able to say, well, that's because I'm this or that? Yeah. Or is it just a whole picture experience? And knowing that and having gone through all these crucible moments that we see, were there things you can point back to and say, that changed my worldview or I grew because of this or that experience? I definitely remember that I was always different going way back to kindergarten, I loved ballet and I loved theater. And I ended up sort of putting together a little production with friends and giving each of the kids in the class uh, a little, you know, role. And, you know, it was kind of make-believe theater. And that was all fun. But I remember by first and second grade, the, the gender shift started happening for me around, you know, not necessarily sort of being one of the boys and, and frankly, having just mostly girlfriends. And, and then, of course, you know, later on when, when puberty happened and, and, you know, sexual awareness, there was again this double click that you're different. I think what sustained me was twofold. One was that I had very supportive parents um, uh, to this day who have been 100% behind me and indeed my my siblings and relatives and family friends who always, I think, knew that I was different, but just said, you know, you're still our, our child, you're still our family member, and we love you for who you are. And the second is that I built relationships with people in the environment that I was in, indeed, many of whom were very different from me. Uh, in high school, I started becoming friends. Uh, I was I was friends with boys, like sort of early in elementary school, and then that kind of shifted to almost all girls, and then kind of shifted back to boys um, a little bit, but had a lot of girlfriends as well. But it was this thing where as I described it, I was never part of any of the cliques at, at high school. I was, I was a cheerleader. I was, a, I was a male cheerleader, actually. But I sort of, I remember I sort of floated between all the different tables and, you know, the, the high school cafeteria where all the cliques are kind of like in Mean Girls. And it's just like I went through each of them and everyone knew me and everyone knew 
you know, I had come out when I was 12 years old as gay. And so I think that honesty, I, I think in hindsight might have maybe allayed some people's fears around like, who, who is this? Because, you know, using those pronouns then, you know, he is being so honest about who he is. And, la- and later on, she's being so honest about who she is that I think it, it deterred a little bit of, you know, hostility. However, on the other hand, I did experience some bullying. I did actually get smacked in the face once by a student when I was walking home who passed me and my friends by. And I remember my, my friend's boyfriend, straight guy, was like horrified to see that. And to, to sort of connect this with other identities, I think one of the things that I also now, being a 35-year-old looking back, I wonder, going back to my both my Jewish identity, but also being very aware that I was, of course, a person of color and seeing what communities of color, what Jewish communities historically, especially in Europe, had faced around discrimination, persecution, and yet there's this constant beat of the song to say, we have to endure, we have to survive. I think that in many ways percolated up for me in terms of sort of looking at the long term. And then, of course, also feeling dedicated and and obligated to help kids just like me and actually kids who weren't just like me. And I think that's that's sustained, uh, you know, uh, up until this very day. I think that's why I do the work that I do. But again, yeah, I I, I like to say in some ways I'm just this walking rainbow or there there are these constant nexuses that I'm making with all kinds of different communities. And so it's just a given to me that I need to be uh, dedicated to human rights work, ultimately, as we would call it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I really noticed some of the themes coming out of that story as it relates to things that I'm sure have served you well as a leader, the honesty, the ability to think towards the future, and then that dedication to service that we spoke about. How do you think navigating those experiences, even perhaps the more adverse ones, really helped develop and hone those skills for you? I think I grappled with the emotions around it. I didn't always, you know, have a therapist per se, but I had friends and family members who were willing to talk to me about um, both the good and the bad. Remember, I was 16 years old when the Goodrich decision came down from the Massachusetts Supreme Court that opened the gates for you know, a same-sex marriage in this country. And so I was I was coming of age in a pivotal moment when a lot of people were having these conversations about, despite our differences, we are members of the body politic of this country. And I think that conversation happening in my environment allowed me to sort of tap in and frankly find strength from that. And I would also really point to this point as well, which is, I had a lot of of role models, of mentors, especially in the LGBTQ community. When I came out, at least in Massachusetts, we had a pretty institutionalized uh, youth community that was sustained by out LGBTQ adults, many of whom were were educators, some were in in policy, um, and and then of course there were there were um, the 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 small at that time community of parents that were also supporting youth. And so, you know, I like to say in a lot of ways that the, the gay straight alliances, or I guess we call them QSAs these days, um, sustained me and, and maybe even saved my life in, in, in some ways, because I, I had a community to go to. Uh, there were organizations like Bagley, um, Boston Alliance of LGBTQ Youth, in town, and, and I was living um, basically two miles out of downtown, so I could access those community resources. But there were just, I met other kids like me that, and we were all having these conversations. And it was real, I, I, I'm sort of thinking back now that we've just uh, had this Respect for Marriage Act signed, how exciting it was 20 years ago because 
I think for a lot of us, it, it, it opened this possibility that I think we never thought could be that we could actually be, uh, uh, even though, you know, here we are 16 year olds, we're going to get married. What does that mean? But I think we also understood, especially by those adult mentors, no, 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 this means this opens a whole new possible avenue that frankly, people who were my age at that time had never, of course, experienced. They thought this was the pinnacle, some sort of tolerant world that they were in. But like, we're lucky if we get any rights for gay marriage that might happen 50 to 100 years from now. And indeed, uh, 20 years later, look where we are in this country. Ravi, you touched on uh, recent events, and it was so awesome to see that uh, ceremony signing the Respect for Marriage Act. And I was personally really moved by that. And though it's not the culmination of anything, it's a great step forward. And we still do have a lot of work to do to take care of those among us uh, that still need their rights, their opportunities as a given rather than a challenge. But in describing that story, I think you touched on a couple of things that we at at Forged and Fire strongly Mm -hmm. believe in. Yes. One of which is that that internal look inside yourself, as as you phrased it, grappling with your identity, you know, is something that tends to set apart a lot of LGBTQ leaders that many people don't do because we haven't done that internal look and said, this is who I am. But then you connected that with a supportive community who then furthers that leadership growth and that Mm -hmm. journey where you take that internal, I'm going to deal with my issues and Mm -hmm. figure out how to expand that. And you join a community. Are there communities you are working with right now that continue to build on that leadership development? And how do you collectively take that internal journey and turn it outwards? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of communities now, especially in the past seven years that really are sort of having that internal conversation about what it means to be indigenous in the, the Americas, right? And and being proud to be indigenous. Again, where I come from um, is indigenous communities. And I do identify as Central American uh, indigenous or, you know, if I'm filling out forms here, I, I check you know, Native American and then Hispanic, Latin, I mean, nothing fits in, right? But I think that's part of the conversation because, you know, I I think indigenous communities are are finally speaking out and saying, no, like colonialism really did happen. Slavery really did happen. We had a a caste system thrown upon us and and these are the results. And we see it even in just the, the material wealth that people have or, or do not have in this country, the access that they do have to resources, healthcare, et cetera. So the communities that I'm working with right now in, in my day job, which has a lot to do with equity and making sure that uh, different communities are at the table when it comes to transportation uh, policies and decisions, well, a lot of these communities were were not ever given their due respect were seen as, as as human beings even you know the american indians in this country uh, for the longest time were you know considered part of flora and fauna they weren't even considered people and you know i think one of the things that's very exciting is is watching all these different communities start having these conversations and i am very aware that in particular, I see a lot of emerging leaders, not just in in indigenous space, but I see it in the women's space, I see it in in the trans space, is a lot of people who share similar intersectional stories and not, not to, not to get like terribly religious or anything, but, you know, I think there, there is uh, an interesting twist in why, at least in, in my faith tradition, Moses is a leader, Queen Esther's a leader, other people who sort of are ambassadors or are go-betweens, liaisons with various communities and sort of can also step back and see the bigger picture. And and it, at least for me, that's that's sort of what sustains me is, is, is sort of understanding I can see many vantage points. And frankly, a lot of times I sort of joke with myself, I, I kind of feel like I have to school both sides to like basically see the broader picture. And I think that's, that's something that's going on right now 
in our society. And I would double click in particular because the communication uh, avenues, the, the mediums that we now have to both communicate outwardly, but then also have those internal conversations with like-minded folks and people who have similar experiences builds a, a wealth of leadership capacity I don't think existed, frankly, when I was 16 years old. Like I was lucky enough to meet five other kids just from Massachusetts who were out and gay. And now I can meet hundreds, if not even thousands of trans leaders around the world who come from many different identities and and experiences. And that's really exciting potential. You probably saw Liz and I smiling and, and laughing a little bit when you hit on multiple perspectives because, boy, as a trans person, yeah, you nailed that. But in terms of all LGBTQ folks, and I'm sure Liz has a great follow-up here, how important that is to see the world from different perspectives. Yeah, Rafi, as we were reading your bio and, and all of the work that you've done, the question that came to our minds was, how has that intersectionality informed where you place your energy and your attention in the advocacy work. There are so many avenues, as you've just highlighted with that scope there. So how do you navigate that? Well, the first, I think, is being very honest about your own truth. And one of the first things that I'm always very aware of is where I don't have uh, the direct experience, but where I can frankly be an ally. And and I, I really believe that being an ally is uh, one that that stands up with, speaks with, writes with a community, but doesn't do it on their behalf. Tangible example, I have members of my family who are deaf and uh, grew up w- with them and, and grew up, you know, being very aware of the experiences of people with disabilities. My father volunteered uh, a lot of his time with um, folks who were blind. and. One of my earliest memories from school, uh, there was a a course that was, I think, brought in uh, to our elementary school, um, basically called Understanding Disabilities, and um, being very aware of just the experiences and, frankly, the real negative experiences and challenges that people with all different types of disabilities, of course, there's a, there's a, there's a broad diversity within the community of disabilities, and it really also sort of translated later on when I was working at the White House in the Office of Public Engagement, my colleague Maria Town was the liaison to the communities with disabilities. And um, there were many intersections there. Uh, There were, frankly, a lot of um, uh, disability leaders who were also queer identified, uh, some even trans. But I would always just be aware of like, what's my role in those conversations? It's not it's not my role to take over, but it's my role really to uh, show up and ask, like, how can I be supportive? And I think that's one of the things that I have found in those intersections is to understand, OK, like, where is my lane? With Indigenous communities, I also feel I'm a little bit more of an ally than not because I, I didn't grow up in an Indigenous environment, though I hail from one and it's in my DNA. But I also am very respectful of the fact that, you know, while I, I do sometimes wear traditional garb from my region of, of, the, of the Americas, I also will, of course, defer to Native leaders from people that are, are coming directly from tribal communities around what is best for them. And indeed, I, I will say again, like, what do you need from, from me? I think where I in particular feel a little bit more grounded is at that very intersection. I was part of a group of adoptees in the Jewish community. We were sort of putting together materials for Jewish educational space around uh, sort of just being self-aware of the experiences of adoptees, not just those transracial adoptees, but also, you know, people uh, coming from mixed communities, et cetera. But I, I find my niche is a little bit exactly where a lot of different uh, crossover is happening. And I would say so also in the trans women of color community as well. Well, I don't, you know, I grew up, frankly, in an American Jewish white household. I still very much feel this connection to uh, communities of color, especially um, trans communities of color. And in fact, a lot of my good uh, colleagues and friends in there have been very emphatic in saying, please, like, 
be part of this community because you are one of us. And of course, because of my my skin tone, you know, I do face racism. And because of my gender identity and 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 all of that, I, I face, you know, trans uh, misogyny and, and everything. And so that's where I think I feel more comfortable to be like, no, 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 like my place is here. I might have gotten here differently than most, but but this is this is my home. So Rafi, you described all these challenges that affect multiple communities and how they come together. But for you in particular, having faced some of these things, how does that inform your mindset about taking care of yourself? Advocacy work is difficult and doing that work on behalf of others is difficult, or I should say with others as the best way of doing it. But still, it takes a lot of yourself to pour into that work. What do you do to recharge your batteries, to push those boundaries back to safe places, even while dealing with this external culture that still puts so much pressure on you to collapse? Well, one of the things that I, I definitely have learned to be better about is identifying when I am approaching my limit, I, whether it's full on triggers that are, you know, Hey, I've had, I, I, you know, I, I can't have this type of interaction or, or meeting a good tangible example. When I was working at the national center for transgender equality, we were working on the issue of immigration detention for trans people, many from, of course, Central America, from Honduras itself. And I remember saying to my um, supervisors who were super uh, supportive of this, of just saying, like, I will never go to an ICE detention center. I understand that a lot of my um, siblings in the trans community, especially the the Latina trans women that are going outside of you know, uh, ICE detention centers in Arizona and California are, you know, doing that work and and frankly risking their lives even. Um, but for me, I also just know my trigger point. I think in in particular because there was this sort of, and there still, of course, exists this feeling of, you know, look that those those people literally could be my direct relatives. Indeed, I, I presume I have direct relatives who have come to this country you know, undocumented wise and knowing that things are really tough down there in Honduras. And and then just to add on being trans and HIV positive and, and who knows what other intersection while I want to push, you know, for their human rights. And, and I did a lot of work here in Washington. I also knew for my psychological well-being, it was best to not be on in the field, so to speak. And I think I, by being honest with a lot of my colleagues, especially women that I knew out there in, in Arizona and California, just saying, look, sis, like, here's, here's where I'm at. Here's how, how I can participate. I mean, they were like, yeah, take care of yourself. Everyone has a role to play. And indeed, I think that's part of it is understanding one's role in the broader spectrum of, of where can I show up and, and where can't I? And you know, look, I, I, I think also just being very aware of needing to cocoon when necessary and, and, and recharge. And one of my outlets that I'm sure people know if they follow me on Facebook and stuff like that is that I like football. I like, I like sports. I, I have a deep love of Scandinavia and the Nordic countries and, and Norway in particular. So I have my outlets and more recently, I'm in a relationship with someone now, and and uh, my boyfriend Sean really is a good part of my self care system in terms of like let's go out. Let's not. He works in IT tech support, but not in political stuff. He works at the State Department, but you know, like he's not political in that sense. And so, like, we're able to just kind of step out and do other things. And I think that's really important for leaders is to not break their necks. Now, look, there are moments when we have to because the the circumstances are so dire. But as you know, 
Bree, from your experience in, in the armed forces and, and thank you for your service is the fact that we, we rotate people off the, the, the lines for a reason. And I think that's the same thing when it comes to um, arguably not only activism work, the nonprofit stuff, but I would even say those of us in, in frontline government work as well, that, you know, we all hit a moment where we are just we needed to we needed to take care of ourselves and i think the thing that some of us are are scared to do is admit that right like we don't want to necessarily show weakness but as i said to a colleague many years ago you're of no service to us if you were burning out because then we have to replace you like right then and there and we're scrambling and 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 that's no fun either right and and I believe that people should be good to themselves because I think that's what we're fighting for at the end of the day is, is goodness for all of us, whether it is individuals, you know, being good to each other, but also one cannot do that if one is not good to themselves. Yeah, I think that that really highlights an important part of your story that we were excited to tell, which is how many firsts you've had in your career, right? And and how many times you've been the trailblazer, you've been out in front. And with that pull for you and that dedication to serve others, that ability to step back and say, I do need a break, I do need to stop, that must be so challenging when you see so much need Mm -hmm. and you're called to it. And oftentimes you're in a position where it may feel like I'm the only one who can do this, or I'm representing something that if I step back or if I don't do this full in, that that's, that's going to either look badly upon whatever it is I'm representing, or it's just going to disappoint or let down a community I'm hoping to serve. And that must be such a mm-hmm. challenging thing. So when you look at those roles of being first, how do you measure success mm-hmm. in that? How do you feel that you're doing what you need to do? Mm, that's a great question. I I think in terms of measuring it, I mean, understanding, of course, just like w- what are the criteria and for the role, like, you know, am I actually doing the things that need to happen? I think the biggest thing that I, I always wanted to make sure whenever I was the first, whether it was at the White House or indeed at the State House in Massachusetts when I was a legislative aide and I technically was the first out um, legislative staffer in the Massachusetts uh, legislature um, back in 2011, I wanted them to meet Rafi, not the transgender staffer, right? Not not the stereotype. Or I wanted them to meet me, and I wanted them to understand that I was here to do the work. Of course, I a lot of the work that I did both in the legislature and at the White House and in between was LGBTQ-related, but I also made sure to involve myself in other conversations so that, yes, in that I guess, trailblazing sense. It's to say a transgender woman is more than just being a transgender woman. It is is a a woman with spirit, with character, with intellect, with with interests, um, with humor and and all of it. And, and And to, yes, humanize through participation. I think that was the most important thing. But to your point, we all reach a moment where Again, we're, 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 we will we will hit burnout. Everyone does, but I think also for me, and maybe this differentiates me from others that are out there, is that I also wanted to make sure that there were other people like me around me and had the same, if not even better, opportunities than me. And so, it, it, part of that was also to step back. And I know, for example, after the White House, I could have. If I wanted to, and I and I really do, you can tell I'm physically cringing up. I distaste this this thing that I I I, I know could exist in terms of you know being a, frankly deeply egotistical and saying I'm going to have my own show and I'm going to write my own book and I'm going to be on everything and da 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 da. For me, it was like no, I'm tired. Actually, immediately it was also this sense of obligation once the former president, President Trump's administration came in that, you know, we knew a lot of things were at at vulnerable risk when it came to the successes that we had achieved in the Obama administration. So there was this sense of, I need to rest, and then I need to get back out there and, and participate. And indeed, I went back to National Center for Trans Equality, and really how 
you know, ran their public education and community organizing component. But after 2018, and, and when we um, in Massachusetts won the Yes on Three campaign, that was the first time trans rights were on the ballot in the country. And, you know, more than uh, uh, I think it was like 75% of the electorate had voted in favor of trans rights. There was this sense for me of, okay, I want to sort of back up so that other people have opportunity. I've also given a lot of my time and effort, and I also have other interests. And I just, I want to explore other things and not feel just pinholed, I guess, into one genre. I think it was really important for me. But then, you know, I also think it's important, again, that people are hearing from a chorus of us. I'll give you uh, just one more example there. I had a a reporter, I think from Miami, call me um, uh, wanting me to be part of some story about trans Latinas and organizing and all that. And I said, look, you know, first of all, I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm more at that policy level. I think you're looking for more deep community organizing. Also, while I am Honduran, American, et cetera, you know, I I grew up in in a more... Ashkenazi Jewish family. And, and I think what you're, what you're evoking around the experiences, especially of uh, trans immigrants and, and undocumented people, um, I'm not doing that direct work while I'm in solidarity with those communities. And indeed, of course, hail from similar communities. I want to connect you with my colleague, Bambi Salcedo with the Trans Latina Coalition in California, who's doing the, um, the work on the ground, I think in this case, this reporter also was bilingual, and, and I think Spanish was, um, frankly, more for, for her um, mother tongue. And so I said, why don't I connect you with Bambi? And it felt really good to do so. Because again, for me, there was no hubris and ego in it. It was more like, let's get the right story out there that is representative of the community. And I understand that takes, frankly, a lot of internal dialogue. And yeah, occasionally, is it nice to be recognized? Of course it is. But I think it, it it's also about the, the, the longer term vision uh, for this community. I think at the end of the day, I, I want to be remembered as being part of a team, not necessarily being just Joan of Arc charging the, the, the castle all by myself. You hit so many themes in that answer that we could explore for hours. I mean, it was beautiful how you talked about how so many people, and yourself included, feel this obligation to do something based on the things that we know about the world and we know about what's happened to us. But then your obligation is so intense that you need to rest for a bit, but then you got to get back out there and, and keep fighting the good fight. Uh, the mm-hmm. fact that you have all these identities of who make up you, but then you just happen to be trans or you just happen to be something else. But hey, mm-hmm. these other things come first in so many situations. And that being a trailblazer, that's setting the stage for others to go further and do more than you were able to do. Wow tons there uh, that we are going to dive into a little bit today, but more so over the course of Forged in Fire. So thank you for opening the door to so many of those things. We have time for a couple more questions. And I want to go back to though you coming out so early, both as gay and then as trans. And that tends to be something that we are starting to see more and more among young people. But for you and at, at your age, that was still really rare. How do we do the work that continues to set conditions where people can be themselves from that mm-hmm. early age so that we can reach for our best selves without some of the discrimination yes. that's out there? Right. Or how do we change culture to make it so people feel safe in doing so? Right, right. Well, you're, I'm smiling because... I'm remembering our ground rules at our Gay Straight Alliance. One of them was, we're all here for our own reasons, to not make assumptions, and that, you know, it was sort of intentional community. You know, Brie, we had a lot of kids in our GSA who were not queer, but they were just different. 
I'm tearing up a little because like I'm thinking some of them were teased too, probably because they, you know, had Asperger's. They um, just weren't, they were more artistic. We had a lot of kids that just were looking for a place to belong. I think a couple of them came from really, you know, difficult circumstances, home life. Indeed, I remember, you know, some straight couples or what I would interpret as straight couples kind of canoodling there, you know, but we created a safe environment, right? And I think that's what I would want for our youth, because I think our youth are pushing appropriately the boundaries of language and self-expression and saying in some ways, we're I like to say we're at this universalist place where it's a, where, what does it matter? I, I actually sort of said to myself, maybe honestly, 10 years ago, I don't think half these labels are going to matter in 25 years that yes, there'll be communities and we'll know we're part of this larger community of love, if you will. But the distinctions that are there, I mean, some of the things that really rile me up and and I really don't mind if I'm being offensive to some people in our community. When I say this, I cannot stand when people say things like "gay uh, gold star gays," meaning you know those that had never been uh, with a woman, or you know how can bisexuality be real, or you know these so-called non-binary people and people who roll their eyes and say they them theirs because it's just like excuse me, this is really important to these people. And while I personally may not understand what it's like to be, for example, a lesbian, I do know what it is like to be different. And I think that was something by having those kids who weren't necessarily LGBTQ identified in our group there was this mutual self-understanding of we know what it's like to be different, but we also know what it likes what it what it is to be human in that same vein. And, and that's something I'm very deeply proud about with our community. And um, again, kind of tearing up here, you know, after the Pulse nightclub shooting, one of the things that I was very worried about was any sort of anti-Muslim immigrant sentiment in our community, because of course, you know, the, the, the killer did come from you know, a radicalized uh, notion around um, Islam, not real Islam. I have have many Muslim friends myself. And so I knew that, but I also knew, look, they're different, you know, our community is a spectrum. And the thing that I would hate to see is our own people, you know, sort of not being their best when it comes to that reaction. Of course, there was a spectrum of reaction. Um, But the great thing that I was so proud of our community was there was none of that. And there was, if anything, this deep intensity to double click on the fact that we're a community about love, we're a community of diversity, you know, that uh, there's a commitment to making sure and dedicating our, our, not only, you know, ourselves, but I would argue, you know, in memory of the people that we lost, that we're going to be better, that we have to be better. And, and that's something that really spoke to me about the power of, in particular, our LGBTQ community. But like every community, we have things to work on. We have community squabbles. Um, but I am hopeful uh, in the long term uh, that we will um, we will be we will be better. And I think our youth are pushing us in that direction. And that's what's so exciting. I can't wait myself to be a mother and when that happens, you know, whether my kids are queer identified or not, you know, I just know that there's a, there's a bigger conversation that's there for them that frankly wasn't there when we were children. And that's kind of exciting in itself, isn't it? Yeah, I think you've really highlighted some of the perhaps sense of responsibility and, and continued work that you hope to see within the community. But you also highlighted talking about, for example, the the Gay-Straight Alliance experiences and some of the allies that you've been around. And I'm wondering, what would you say to allies in terms of, of what you hope they contribute to this work and continuing to move forward? I hope they don't shy away from just having conversations about all types of differences, not even just LGBTQ related I think what's very exciting right now is that we have a lot of examples of allies speaking out. I think of all of the NFL players who came 
a forward right after Carl Nassib came out a year or two ago now. Um, and that was a huge deal, of course, in a very masculine environment. But for people to say, yeah, no, wait a second. Like, no, I know gay people. And, um, you know, I, I know, you know, my, my training coaches are, are lesbians and, you know, and, and then when Black Lives Matter was going on and still, of course, is going on that, that so many people were stepping forward and saying, this is not okay. Racism is disgusting and needs to go away. We have a reckoning that has to happen. I think the thing that I encourage allies is, of course, to be aware of their place in conversations that sometimes it is inappropriate to, you know, speak on behalf of other people, especially if you don't know the experience, but in other ways, we absolutely need people standing shoulder to shoulder to us. And sometimes I would even argue being courageous resistors themselves. I, I think about an example prior to government service when I got a phone call that said, you know, we're about to do an action on Capitol Hill. Would you join a coalition of people that are planning to get arrested? I said, look, I actually think that would be very dangerous for me as as a trans woman of color. However, I know six cis gay men that absolutely would be, you know, fired up to do so. Like they're looking for that. And like, can I give you their number? And I, I forget, I think it was a very progressive Jewish rabbi that reached out to me about this. It was some like interfaith coalition that was going to get arrested about something that was going on. Me, me, me. <laughs> right, right. But it was sort of knowing like, Hey, you know, this is when I can call upon allies to say like, this would be really meaningful. I, I actually think it was a, related to me too. And, and the women's movement. And, and when, there were sort of die-ins happening on Capitol Hill. I think it was actually around the Kavanaugh hearings, if I remember correctly. But those are moments, too, when allies can really step forward and say, look, like, I know that I need to stand in solidarity with women, you know, or with Black people or with folks with disabilities and, and be present and and also ask, like, what can I do as an ally? I think sometimes allies... And I, I do this myself, frankly, as an ally. Sometimes I, I, I get a little bit tongue-tied and scared, you know, in terms of like, how should I actually show up? But, but just even first being present and then asking, what can I do? Goes such a long way. So, Rafi, this question may make you blush a little bit because I'm going to describe a couple things said about you and a couple things you said about yourself. And I, I think this mm -hmm. is, is beautiful. And it, it really describes you as you've been talking so much about, you know, creating these cultures of, of beautiful inclusion uh, as something that is so important for our community and for other marginalized community. But when you were working uh, at the White House, Valerie Jarrett, who was a, a senior advisor to the president, said that you demonstrate the kind of leadership that that administration champions and your commitment to bettering the lives of trans Americans, particularly trans people of color and those in poverty, reflected the values of that administration. And I think the current one, as well as anything you'd like to see in the future as, as incredibly mm -hmm. important values, because I can take that back all the way through your career and the work that you did early on. And even from that understanding of yourself, you had at an early age, where you gave a presentation well over a decade ago and you named yourself, you said, I'm a Jewish transgender woman adopted from the Lenca people of Western Honduras. I'm here to alleviate the suffering of all living beings. I mean, that's incredible to come out and be blunt about, this is my goal. This is my goal in life. Where's mm -hmm. that going to take you? What's next? in your leadership journey and how you take in all these things, take care of yourself and move forward working with and alongside other marginalized communities? Well, certainly I'm blushing. I, I think I will always be part of conversations, important community building, wherever it is happening, whether it is in government, through through the auspices of the government, or back in, in sort of the community organizing nonprofit, you know, I do think there is an interesting place for, you know, more of the corporations of our country, because look, we, we, are, we do live in a capitalist society. And in, indeed, you know, when we had that boycott in North Carolina a few years ago around 
House Bill 1, I mean, that would not have been without, frankly, community leaders going to corporations and saying, you have corporate responsibility here. And indeed, the other thing that I I think wasn't part of the narrative then, but now I know very much exists, is the fact that we have people of all different differences inside those institutions that are pushing them to do better. Um, And we hear those stories every day. I want to be part of those conversations. However, I don't know what the future has in store for me. I I do have hopes and dreams. I do hope to be a mother someday. And I know that's going to change my orientation a little bit when it comes to my sort of availability and and maybe my self-declare role as, as someone that can be there on the front lines. But I like to think, I sort of joke with myself, you know, I'll be <clears throat> retired and I, I love the, the, um, the mountains of North Carolina. And I think, well, maybe I'll retire down there, but as an 86 year old, like they'll come find me at my cabin and they'll knock and be like, we need you. And I like roll myself out with like the trans flag. And I'm like, I'm coming. And my, my grandchildren are like, Bubby, no, like, wait, and, you know, but like, I think there is this sense of, of just, wait, wait, you're going to be a Bubby, not a Safta. No. Yeah. 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 No, I am Yiddish, you know, but yeah, no Safta, but more, more Bubby. But uh, really, in particular, I, I, I mean this, I think, as long as I can, I will be doing work on behalf of, of other communities of people that are suffering out there. I think, indeed, you know, you know, I think that's something that we all share is that experience of suffering. I mean, we know, we know in, in the Buddhist uh, tradition and faith that that's, that's where conversation begins around just understanding the human condition. And, and look, you know, I was born into poverty. You know, my, my birth parents were illiterate. They, you know, really stemming from colonialism and marginalization and, and really to the present day. But I, was really given in some ways a gift by my birth mother, an opportunity to, you know, have another experience as a human being on this planet. And there is this feeling of paying back that gift by, by just being part of that continuing work that needs to happen to alleviate all these other folks, because I don't want to just be the only only, right? It should be all of it. We should be celebrating the thousands trans person that works in the White House whenever that is. And I think it will happen and that will be amazing. And and that's that should be the goal and, and it's exciting. But yeah, that's I, I think that's that's my that's my dedication. How it actually shows up. I mean, I'm excited to know, of course, you know, who knows? But I also yeah, I have these goals around family. I definitely have these goals around building further community with people around the world. I'd love to visit other LGBTQ communities in places like the South Pacific and India, folks that I've met when they pass through here. But I think it is incumbent on me, especially as an American, to go and and learn about the experiences of people abroad. And so now that we're in a little bit of a safer world, uh, post-pandemic, if you will, because obviously it's still going on, but like I think there's for me, at least a push again to do some international travel too. So we'll see. I don't know, but I, I, I know I'll be there. And if I'm, if I'm holding a picket sign or I'm, I'm making phone calls or whatever I need to do, I, I will be there. So Rafi, as you focus on the future, you said something that really struck a chord with me earlier, which was let's get the right story out there. And I think that's very much what we hope to do here as well. So I'm wondering, what was it that made you want to contribute to our work? And what is it that you would hope to see out of Forged in Fire? I think it is really exciting that you were having conversations with leaders, and I I gather emerging leaders uh, as well um, in our community, and maybe even posit that it, it, it might be exciting to bring people who are maybe uh, adjacent to the LGBTQ community, those allies, right, who are, who are great allies, but just understanding their stories. So I think there's there's so much crossover at the end of the day, of course. This experience has just been great in the hour that I've shared around just a, a lot of internal reflection. It's been grounding for me to be like, 
okay, so I, I'm going to work tomorrow, right? Because like, I just I've, like sort of said to myself, hey, these are all the awesome reasons why I'm doing this work. But it's also reminding me like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to actually be traveling next year with my boyfriend a little bit. We've been planning, but I'm now really excited about that because I know that's the self-care I need. And I, I, I really just thank you both for creating this safe space to uh, be honest and without apology, uh, because I, I think these are conversations that, that we need to hear as leaders. And, and again, I'm putting myself as, as a, as a 14 year old in high school and looking up to those LGBTQ leaders, those women leaders, those people of color leaders. And in some ways I wish we had podcasts back then. And and, because I would have wanted to hear from them uh, about their, reflection. So maybe that's another thing is to go find those leaders from many years ago. Hopefully they're all still doing well, because I think they have a lot of interesting knowledge to pass on to us as well. There are so many amazing stories we hope to explore over the course of this series, but we are so thankful and honored you decided to join us as our very first guest because you hit on so many of the themes that we hope to explore. And we are so excited to see where you go. And hopefully you have some amazing travels and that self-care keeps you going. Uh, And we'll be there with a camera, I hope, you know, when you're that 86-year-old grandma rolling down the mountain uh, to come take care of those in need. So Ravi Friedman Gersman, thank you so much uh, for joining us here on Fortune Fire. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Forged in Fire is hosted by Brie Fram and Liz Cavallero. Produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos and Christina George. Guest management by Trey Wirth and original music by Bridget Benemark. The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. To learn more about Forged in Fire, please visit us at forgedinfire.org. Thank you.